over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, second reading from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word. Thanks, Emma. My name is uh, Phil. I'm one of the ministers on staff here. It's great to have you here with us this morning. We're going to look at these wonderful verses together in Genesis 1 and 2 is where we'll spend most of our time. But we'll get to Matthew at the end. Let's pray. Father God, your word is life and truth. We pray this morning that you would give us life and help us to understand your truth. Amen. In 1930, the economist John Maynard Keynes famously looked out the dazzling technological advancements of his age and the enormous growth in economic output. And he predicted that within a century, we would only need to work 15 hours a week and that the greatest challenge for mankind would be how on earth do we use all that free time? How's that working out for you? (laughs) Well, there's still 13 years for us to get there. Perhaps we feel it particularly acutely here in London, but a troubled relationship with work and rest does seem to be a consuming feature of human life. The first century uh, Roman philosopher Seneca pointed out that his fellow citizens wasted their years on earth with fruitless, frantic busyness, needlessly baking their bodies in the sun which is how we spend our leisure time these days. But there we go. Uh, There's some ironies there. It it matters very, very much that we work this out, how to understand the the relationship between work and rest and how to do so wisely. Because if you go out to an office, you'll spend between 65 and 75,000 hours of your life at work. Unless you understand and work wisely you're going to make a big mess of an awful lot of life. You can't live well unless you understand work well. 
Now, Genesis answers the most basic questions of human existence, as we've seen. Uh, So far, we've seen how God relates to his world, how we relate to our God, how we relate to one another in certain relationships. And now we'll see how we relate to the world around us. Uh, This passage that we're looking at, it won't tell us everything. Uh, There's an awful lot of rich, insightful, helpful teaching in Scripture about these themes of of work and rest. But what this passage will do is teach us a couple of foundational, fundamental truths. If you want to um, dig in a bit more deeply, I can commend... Well, I have to, no, I don't have to. I can commend. I've read and I've enjoyed and actually found hugely helpful. Uh, Matt's book, A Time for Everything. It's no coincidence that a minister of a central London church has ended up writing a book about how on earth do you balance the business of life? It's the questions that people keep asking him. Uh, so do read this. It, it summarizes a whole uh, heap of what the Bible says. Whereas today we're just going to drill down into, into a couple of things, a couple of foundational things that Genesis teaches us. You've got um, the points on your sheet there. Firstly, God created us for work. Secondly, God created us for rest. Let's look firstly then at work. Uh, Genesis 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, both times there that the, the creation of humanity is recorded, it's followed immediately with a call to work. Verse 26, we're made in God's image so that we work, ruling over God's world for him. Verse 28, the call is repeated. And then work is described as a blessing that God bestows on us. And it's only after God has set humanity to work in the world that we read verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. As surprising as it might seem to us, one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God, is that we are workers. Which is one of the reasons uh, why being long-term unemployed is so painful and debilitating to people. But here, let's, uh, let's try and answer two questions, really, from this passage. What is work and why is work a blessing? Uh, what exactly is work? What is it that God blesses humanity with? What is it that he calls us to do? Uh, well, the most complete statement comes in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, uh, to work in Genesis 1 is fundamentally to populate, to subdue, and to rule over the world. To populate, subdue, and rule over it. But what exactly is meant by that? Actually, I think things become clearer in a sense when you, um, when you drift over into the next chapter. Chapter 2, where God puts Adam into the garden of Eden and uh, verse 15 of chapter 2 calls him to take care of it and then brings alongside him Eve to to be a co-worker with him in this great task and effectively Eden provides the working model for the world beyond 
Adam and Eve are to bring the, the order of the garden where they are to the wild world outside, to the raw material. You see, God designed the world to need ordering. It's raw and it's untamed. And that's not a deficiency. It's like, um, you can imagine it this way. Eden, uh, God has given them a whole heap of Lego models, already made. And then he's tipped out a gazillion Lego bricks into the world around and said, go have fun. This is, this is the sort of thing that I have in mind. Now go use your creativity. Go, go Lego build the world. I've just tipped out the bricks. I want you to exercise your creative power, your ingenuity, your desire to make things. And go, there's a whole world of Lego bricks for you. So God's work is anything that brings order and fruitfulness then to the world. Taking the raw materials of eggs and flour and sugar and making a cake. Uh, Taking the raw materials of language and learning and paper and writing a letter of advice. Taking the raw materials of gifts and education and opportunity and turning them into work that provides income to pay taxes and support others. That is the noble, exciting, challenging calling that God gives Adam and Eve. Bring order to this world. I've got a friend who said the reason he likes washing up is he takes the chaos and disorder of his sink full of dirty dishes and brings to one tiny corner of creation that he is responsible for order and cleanness. And he feels like it's about as much as he can manage. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) hey, I know what he means. Okay, that's what work is. It's, It's filling and ordering the world. It's bringing the order of the garden, I think, to the world beyond. But why does verse 28 of Genesis 1 describe it as a blessing? Why does work appear before the fall? I mean, that is odd, isn't it? He goes out to work before the fall. How is it you can have work in a world that's described as very good? The answer was hinted in 26 and 28. But actually, it becomes more clear in uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God is love. God is light. God is judge. God is king. God is creator. God is mighty warrior. God is redeemer. God is also worker. Three times it says in verses two to three, he worked. And the writer is, is emphasizing, he's rubbing it in our faces and he's using a word for ordinary human work rather than the word create, which is only ever used to describe what God does. He's using a very human image for God. God is spoken of as clocking off after a heavy week in the office. And that is an absolutely revolutionary idea. In Greek mythology, Hesiod tells us the gods created humans in the Halcyon period of the Golden Age when there just was no work. And so the earth produced all it needed to and humans just sort of lounged around watching Netflix and enjoying leisure and arts. And that was all there was to it. Work came later when everything went wrong and the world fell. In the other ancient Near Eastern myths, the gods got together and they created humans because, uh, well, they didn't want to work, so they better create a sort of slave race of base menial beings to do all the work for them. That's us, to farm and mine for the gods and peel their grapes for them. But not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, God is a worker. And the fundamental 
therefore, to being made in his image is that we, like him, work. We're made to work. We often say, uh, I work to live rather than live to work. But there is a sense that if you're a human being, you live to work. It's what we were made to do. Now, our experience of work is radically different to the experience that Adam and Eve had in the garden. uh, Because the curse of sin affects both our nature and work itself. In the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve didn't have to contend with weeds and computer crashes and unreasonable bosses and southern railways. But sin and the curse and evil, they cannot deny the example of God. They can ruin the experience of mankind, but they cannot deny the example of God. And they cannot undo completely his pattern for you and for me. Work will never be perfectly satisfying and fulfilling until we're with God in his new creation. But it will always be valuable from God's perspective. We were created for work. Part of obeying God's word is to obey this word of God and to go out and work for him. But more than that, because God works, there is an inherent dignity and value to all work. So uh, do you know why uh, Bogner Regis is called Bogner Regis? Uh, Bogner is a pretty ordinary name for a town. In fact, it's a very ordinary name for a town. It has all sorts of dodgy connotations. But in 1929, King George V convalesced from illness there. And he so enjoyed his stay that the town was bestowed with the title of Regis, royal, Bogner Regis. The presence of the king bestowed honour on the place. And as ordinary as Bogner was before, it will always be now Bogner Regis, Royal Bogner. And the same is true for work. Once you've seen God, the perfect God, roll up his sleeves and get stuck into a day's work in Genesis 1, then forever after, work is royal. Work is bestowed with a, not just a royal, but a divine dignity and value. All work has an honour. I remember going to see uh, my godson when he was a little toddler. And his mum was a very, very glamorous mum. And I arrived at the aftermath of, shall we say, a lively meal time. And, uh, and she was, uh, she, I remember I came to the kitchen and she said, I used to conduct serious meetings and manage a budget of millions. And now I'm crawling around, clearing up baby puke and watching Teletubbies. What has happened to my life? <laughs> But from God's perspective, I didn't say this to her at the time, it probably wasn't the moment, but from God's perspective, even the most menial of tasks is meaningful. Because work is meaningful in God's eyes. We need to remind one another, any work done for God is meaningful in the eyes of God. And we need to get rid of the sort of middle class snobbery that ranks people's values according to, well, how seriously our culture takes their profession. All work, all work is meaningful and valuable in God's eyes. All work is royal because God is a worker. And Genesis tells us that whenever we work, whatever work we do, we reflect the image of God and we obey his calling. And that is a great thing to remember tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off and the duvet feels incredibly heavy and the anxieties and pressures of the day start to weigh in upon us. We were created by God, to work. The flip side, though, is that God also created us for rest. 
Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. This is the pinnacle of the creation account, really. And again, there are two questions I I want to attack the passage with. They've not made it onto the sheets, but why rest and what is rest? It's a very important moment in Genesis. And so it's very important that we understand this. Why rest and what is rest? We will need to refer to other bits of the Bible, but let's start here in Genesis 2. Why should we rest? Two reasons I think are presented here. Firstly, it's a pattern and secondly, it is a blessing. It's a pattern. Verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God is at rest. That doesn't mean he's doing nothing. He hasn't moved to Florida to work on his golf swing. The rest of the Bible makes it very clear God is still doing stuff. Uh, Jesus says in John 5, 17, My father is always at his work to this very day. And so we read in Hebrews 1, verse 3, God is at work sustaining the universe. Uh, Psalm 93, 1, God is at work ruling over his creation. Luke 19, 10, God is at work rescuing and redeeming his people. John 14, 2, God is at work preparing a home for you and for me in the new creation. Romans 8, 28, God is at work ensuring that every painful circumstance of our life somehow works out for our ultimate good and blessing. But Genesis 2, verse 2, God is at rest from his work of creating. Now it is so, so important that we understand the the foundation, the origin of Sabbath rest so that we don't get confused about it the way the religious leaders seem to in Jesus' day. Here is the picture that we get. It is not a whole heap of rules about not being allowed to cook this or being allowed to, to walk that far to go to the bathroom or do anything that raises your heart rate above 90 beats per minute. There's none of that in the origin of the Sabbath. It's more like this. Imagine as you do, you're, um, you go to see your parents and you're in the shed and you pull off an old tarpaulin in your parents' shed and, oh, there it is, the rusting hulk of a Ferrari 250 GTO. And so you spend your weekends for the next however many years uh, tinkering and restoring this priceless um, racing car. Or imagine you spend days and days and days preparing a sumptuous, mouth-watering Christmas meal, uh, dry-aged turkey that's been hung properly, perfectly basted, Homemade stuffing, rich, creamy gravy made from the turkey. Crisp on the outside, fluffy on the inside, roast potatoes. Succulent veg, sweet cranberry sauce, a nice Chateau Margot. This, alas, is not the church lunch, although it'll be very tasty. (laughs) Uh, um, We couldn't stretch the Chateau Margot today. But Sabbath is the moment you sit down and take off the apron and start to eat. Sabbath is the moment that you put down the last tool, wipe your hands, turn the key and start to drive. It's not the time when you're not allowed to do anything. It's the time when, in one sense, the work is finished and you can now enjoy what has been made. God has finished creating and he now starts to enjoy his creation and the people that he has put in it. That's the heart, the origin of Sabbath rest, turning from the work of creating to the delight of enjoying. 
And what God has made is very, very good. And so from the start, he established this rhythm to life, this pattern of six days work followed by one day's rest. And the need for a day of rest is a pattern that God has just sown into creation. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you'll know that the idea of Sabbath rest, uh, it does develop through the Bible. It becomes one of the Ten Commandments, which tells you how important it is. Don't worship false gods, don't murder, don't steal, have a day off. I mean, does that seem slightly sort of odd ordering to you? And yet God says it is that important. Now, there are reasons for that. Um, Now's not the time to get into that. But the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus and interpreted authoritatively by him. And interestingly, Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus doesn't republish as a law for us. So you don't break a law if you don't have a day off. In the sense that there's a written law, you know, you run a red light, as some people do, and uh, you, get, you get in trouble. You get prosecuted. You've broken a law, you get in trouble. Sabbath isn't like that. Sabbath is a law like gravity is a law. It's part of the fundamental nature, the pattern of the universe God has made and the bodies God has given us. And you suffer the consequences if you break the law of gravity while walking along the edge of a cliff. And it's like that with Sabbath. God created the world with a pattern of six days work, one day rest. A sustainable pattern. Not all work all the time, nor doing nothing. But six days work, one day's rest. And if we ignore that, then we will suffer the natural consequences of our unnatural actions. But actually, even that is too negative a way to think. Uh, Sabbath rest is not only... It's not a law that binds us. That's the wrong way in one sense to think about it anyway. It is a gift here that blesses us. It's a gift that blesses us. God is telling us to take a holiday. I remember going to a wedding overseas when I was an apprentice here at church. And... uh, and the groom said, oh, it's very good of you to travel you know, halfway around the world to come to the wedding. And um, I said, oh, it's great to have an excuse for a holiday. And he said to me, you English in your holidays, you can't make any money on holiday. I wanted to say, I'm an apprentice at church. <laughs> I not make any money if I was there. But, um, but what a sad attitude that, uh, for, to him. Holiday is a thing that was just gets in the way of getting ahead with work. But it's a blessing to take a holiday. It's a blessing to rest. It's a blessing to feel that I don't have to keep spinning all the plates. I can trust that God is in control. I remember talking to an elder at a a previous church, Mark, and he told me at university um, in the final year, he was getting quite obsessed with work. And the minister at his church said, you need to take a day off, Mark. God designed you for that. And to start with, he um, he felt actually quite bound by this as he would go off to church and then uh, go for a walk in the countryside in the afternoon while he saw his his um his housemates going into the library to get ahead with work with finals coming up but he said gradually over time things changed and he started to feel the freedom of i do not have to work seven days a week i can trust in god and down tools and he started to realize he wasn't the one who was bound It was his friends who were bound, who couldn't not work every minute. And he started to find actually a a day off, a Sabbath rest was a huge blessing. Because it took the pressure off him and allowed him to rest as his body needed. Why take a rest day each week? Well, it's the pattern that God has made in in the world. And it's the blessing that God has given you. 
Okay, that's the why. What about the what? What is Sabbath rest? Just two simple things again we see here. We see a whole lot more in the rest of scripture. But here, it's a turning away from work and a turning towards God. Turning away from work and turning towards God. Firstly then, it's a blessing to enjoy a day of rest when we turn away from work. A a day when I won't just check the work emails. When I won't do a bit of office admin. Where I won't get ahead with some of next week's tasks, but it will switch off completely. And that is not always possible, is it? I know what you're thinking. I can hear the thoughts shouting from out there. Uh, Sometimes there is a season at work, which is a season of crisis or sometimes a season of opportunity. That just means I can't really take a day off right now or I'd be crazy to. Sometimes the very nature of your work means a day off is rather difficult. I mean, imagine one of the mums here. Sorry, darling, I know your nappy needs changing and you haven't been fed since yesterday. But today is my day off. See how well that goes, you know. Toddlers don't really go for that, do they? Taking a day off is not always simple. I get that. But I think perhaps the danger in a congregation like ours is that we, because we can't do it properly, we don't do it at all. We sort of give up on trying in one sense, bizarrely. And the danger is that we then, we do live in a very unhealthy pattern. And I get that most of us, actually, it's very difficult to take a proper day off, the sort of day off we'd love to. But the danger is we don't then do anything. We don't uh, work out as a family, as, as church family and friends. How can we help one another to, to make one day a week a little less like work, even if it can't be perfectly restful? One day a week, a little less filled by work, a little less filled by the admin of life, are the things we can do just to carve out a bit of space to make things better, even if they can't be perfect. It would be a very good thing to discuss and think and pray. It may mean a, a change of responsibilities, that perhaps those who go out to work in the week, if that's your household, uh, take on some of the home responsibilities at weekends, and, and we try and work things around. But we try to do something to mean that there is a day that feels a bit different for all of us. All the caveats, yes. All the difficulties, I know. But let's not give up trying. But it's not just a day of turning away from work. Secondly, it is a day of turning towards God. Uh, This rest is not just the absence of activity. Do you see in verse 3, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. He rested from work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Holy in the Bible means set apart for God. Set apart for God. And the second time the Ten Commandments are set out in the Bible in Deuteronomy 5, Moses reminds them that the Sabbath is a day for remembering God's salvation. It's a day for consciously turning away from work and consciously turning to God, to enjoy him, to spend time with him. It's a day when we down tools and remember, my greatest need as a human is my Father God. That's my greatest need. A day when I deepen my knowledge of him, my trust in him, and my enjoyment of him. Gathering in his presence with my church family, reading his word, discussing it, praying to him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean I can't enjoy music, sport, the great outdoors, but God is the focus of Sabbath rest. And so when I enjoy those other things, I consciously connect them to God 
And it's good to get into the habit of praying with thankfulness, of talking with thankfulness about the good things that we enjoy from God. Now the Puritans get a bad press for the way they had a downer on doing anything other than going to church on a Sunday. But they were actually rightly sceptical of the value of recreations that required spending so much time and money. You know, playing and watching sport, music, painting, kite surfing, whatever it is, could be a great thing to do. But the danger that they recognise that we'd be foolish to ignore is that our so-called recreations can suck all of our time and all of our money and energy. So actually we are more tired at the end of our rest than we are at the end of our work sometimes. And we end up never at church and strapped for cash. Sabbath rest is not uh, you mustn't ever do anything outside a church building. But it is saying that at the heart of what we need as we turn away from work is to refresh ourselves with God. However, however, when all is said and done, even if you have the perfect attitude to work and nail the whole Sabbath rest thing, you will find life tiring and frustrating. That's cheery. And it's not just a February London thing. It's a reality of life in a fallen world thing. It's just the way it is. But you see, the greatest thing about Christianity is not that it reveals the wisest way to live in a fallen, broken world, although it does. The greatest thing about Christianity is that it gives us hope for something better, something much better. Eternal life through Jesus. I read a fascinating article over the Christmas holidays by Oliver Berkman, Why Time Management is Ruining Our Lives. It was all about the, uh, the drive for productivity, zero email, getting things done, all these, uh, all these massive industry of how to be more productive, effective at home and at work. And, uh, and he wrote this um, in his conclusion, personal productivity serves the same psychological role that busyness has always served, to keep us sufficiently distracted that we don't have to ask ourselves potentially terrifying questions about how we're spending our few days. He quotes Nietzsche, which always lends us a certain weight to anything. Uh, How we labour at our daily work more ardently and thoughtlessly than is necessary to sustain our life, because it is even more necessary not to have leisure to stop and think. Haste is universal because everyone is in flight from himself. And Berkman concludes, in particular, we are all filling ourselves with busyness because we are in flight from the awful truth that we are soon all going to die. It was a cheery article. It was actually very insightful. But there is a wonderful reversal that the gospel message brings. His point was that humanity, especially in the West, is throwing ourselves into work. Both uh, personal productivity at home, achieving stuff in my spare time as well as at work. Because we need to keep our minds from the awful thoughts of what is to come. The great beyond death. And we have to try to make our work important enough that I feel that I can justify my existence by what I do. But Christianity flips all of that on its head. According to the gospel, what comes next is the glorious hope that sustains us in the difficulties of our daily life and the often meaninglessness that I feel about the busyness of life down here. 
I know that in the future, because Jesus rose from the dead, there will be paradise. There will be a world of meaning and fulfillment and delight to come. And therefore, I do not need to block out thoughts of the future. And nor do I need to find perfect meaning in what I do here and now. And in the meantime, I'm free to offer my daily work to God as worship and enjoy the ultimate rest, the deepest rest that there is. The rest of knowing that a job I could never complete has been done. For Jesus' death on the cross forgives my sins, dies my death and qualifies me for eternal life with God. When he said it is finished on the cross, that job you and I could never achieve has been done for us as a gift. And so Jesus Christ is able to say to each and every one of us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And we have this wonderful physical image of that now as we share the Lord's Supper together. As we come to a meal that is served to us by God. Not an offering we bring God. But God calls us to rest, to trust in the work he has done. God feeds us. Because it is not that we can somehow work into his rightful presence. But rather he gives you as a gift all that you need for eternal life and forgiveness of sins.